I get a feeling it's going to be a riot. I don't read the newspapers because they all have ugly prints. Yes, and we are live for yet another wonderful episode of Tin Foil Hat. Joining me is my trusty sidekick. They call him the Silent Bob of Conspiracies. Ryan Davis, everybody. How are you? That's me. Ryan, how are you doing well? Thanks for uh, thanks for coming back. I'm ready to get into this. Yeah, we're super excited. Ryan and I worked very hard on this episode. <laughs> And uh, we don't know if our first guest was going to come in, but uh, just because we uh, we love him very much. He, he's in a great podcast. He's on a great podcast called The Store Horseman, and I'm really happy he's here. He's both into our topic and conspiracy, so he's perfect for the show. Please welcome my friend, Chris Blackburn, everybody. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Now, we were, this is a very funny episode because... A long time ago, when I started uh, this, ep- this is only the 14th episode of Tinfoil Hat. Now, when I started doing it, I had a couple people tell me some people aren't going to want to do this show because the name of the podcast, Tinfoil uh-huh. Hat, they will assume it's about p- crazy people and owning um, a thousand cats. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, and it's very interesting because this week we were supposed to have a gentleman on who wanted to come in and talk about open primaries. And now primaries forever have been rigged. Mm-hmm. Well, we get a call from the guy who helped book him going, he doesn't want to do a conspiracy podcast called Tim Foy Hat. Fine. Okay. So then we're kind of talking and, you know, me and Ryan are talking about what, what show would be good. And I've always wanted to dive into, you know, Tupac and Biggie, because you know that was a big part of my life, and probably most of the guys here on the show. Oh yeah, were you a big hip hop guy? Always Wu Tang, Tupac, everything else. You know. I mean, I've been listening to. I mean, I'm older than both you guys. I've been listening to it way back in the day. You know, I was break dancing in '85, so like (laughs) I, I was really into all this shit. I mean, way earlier than '85, I was break dancing very early. So I was into hip hop. I grew up on Motown and. So I was always into it. So it's kind of like, hey, you know, let's do something about it. And right around then, all these stories started popping up. I don't know if you saw in the news about how Suge Knight yeah. from jail had basically stated that. That he knows who did it, yeah. He knows who did it, and he basically says, who is it? And I, it comes from this doc. So I hit up this guy named R.J. Bond, who is the director of this thing. I, I approach him. He says he's totally down with doing it. And then yesterday... I he I get a, a tweet from a tweet from a DM. He's never done a show called Tinfoil Hat, and now he's got some kids' issues. They can't. And maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. I don't know, but it coincides with him deciding yeah. Tinfoil Hat isn't weird. So even before that, we had talked about how conspiracy theories are all white guys talking to white guys. <laughs> And I remember talking to you because I had your girlfriend on here that was a very popular podcast, Vanessa Johnston. It was a very popular podcast, and you were telling me about how you were really into conspiracies in college. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I uh, I mean, you know, you get through that idealistic phase when you're in college, and you're like, I got I to gotta know all the secrets of the universe. And so, you know, you start studying. I became a Freemason when I was in college because Did I just had to know. you apply for that? Well, they say to be one, ask one. And so I asked one, and here we are a few years So later. you're a Freemason? I am, I am. What belt are you? Are you a brown belt? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's degrees, okay. not belts. You know what I mean? But, you know, what I am, is, it doesn't matter. Okay, we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah. That's like great. Awesome. So now I've had a Freemason and a Satanist <laughs> on this show, which is cool. Some say the same thing. Some say the same thing. Some are you into say. Satanism? Uh, I kept waiting for that. I kept waiting for the degree where they showed us the goat that we yeah. had to kiss. It, yeah, I, I, haven't, too. I, yeah, I haven't made it there quite yet. Okay, okay, so. okay. Like, uh, how often uh, is it like university classes? Like, you gotta go <laughs> to Freemason school? Is uh, it like DeVry and shit? You do it online? <laughs> like, what is it? Can't do it online, but I mean, it is kind of like that. You go, to, you kind of go to school while you're going through the process, and then eventually. It's more just kind of a fellowship thing. You you have regular meetings and and you you know talk about stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, like, how often are the meetings? 
Uh, like, like there's once a week. You yeah. know what I mean? There's meetings. And you can go week? to you can go to as many as you want. You don't have to just go to your specific lodge. Are there coffees at this? <laughs> at this? Definitely coffees. Freemasonry is a dry organization, so okay, no booze. Okay, coffee, no booze. Soft uh, bagels, cream cheese. Whatever you want. Whatever Sounds you like want. a lot, like an AA meeting. Just a little be bit, a little you. bit, a little bit. Okay. Same amount of networking. I too. respect that. I totally <laughs> respect that. I respect that. Um. So you're a Freemason. You're deep into this stuff. You were, you've been studying since college, right? Yes, yes. And you've kept up your studies. Yeah. You didn't drop it. Like I was into jujitsu for a while. Stop <laughs> doing it. Might go back to it. Okay. You're not breakdancing anymore either? No. I do, I, I, you know what's so funny <laughs> is I have this bit about um, stripper in a wheelchair that was very famous way back in the day. And... And people ask me constantly to do it, and I'm like, I can't do it. I am physically not built to do it anymore. I j- it's a young man's joke, oh Man, boy. man. Got to get your B-boy bars back up, man. Uh, so so you're also big into hip-hop. You and I, yes. for a very long time, ran the comedy rap battles, which predicated the roast battles. Mm-hmm, indeed. And I made the f- – we you got them? Okay, he's calling you now. He's calling you now. He's calling you now. Are you there? I am here, my friend. Oh, please welcome to the show. He is the director of uh, Tupac Assassination Battle for Compton. Please welcome to the show, R.J. Bond, everybody. Welcome, buddy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How you doing, brothers? Uh, I'm doing fine. Is there any way we can put him up on this screen? Nope. Fuck. All right. It's okay. So, uh, RJ, thank you for thank you for joining us. I didn't think you nope. were going to. I thought you got a little scared off by the name of our show, which is nah. fine. You know, it well, happens. We keep, we keep the tinfoil hat in the closet. It's still <laughs> around. We just keep it in the closet. So I had, uh, I'm here with uh, uh, my co-host, which is Ryan Davis, and also joining us is uh, Chris Blackburn. He is, uh, he's in the, he's a conspiracy theorist, and he's also into world hip hop. He has his own podcast. Oh. He's a very funny guy, and uh, he's totally into this whole thing. Can't wait. Nice. Okay. Cool. So joining, okay. So basically, let's start from the beginning. This is the third in a series of you putting out about uh, basically the assassination of Tupac, the killing of Tupac, and the killing of the notorious B.I.G. Right. This is this is the third one. Uh, we started this about 10 years ago, 2007. We released the first one, and then there was about a seven-year lag between the second one and the third one. What made you get so into this particular topic? Well, actually, my my involvement in it came from my relationship with Frank Alexander. Frank was Tupac's bodyguard that was killed. Or, he wasn't killed. Shakur was killed on his watch. He was the bodyguard that was there that night. Yeah. And and uh, Frank and I became friends just shortly after that happened. And we stayed friends for, until the day he died. And, uh, you know, he was kind of the reason that I got into it because – he had a lot of interconnections with the record label, knew a lot of stuff that was going on behind the scenes. And that really kind of became the gateway of what we ended up making out of the movie. Now, as you start this journey through it, the first the first doc focuses mostly on what? Well, the first doc is really almost a line item breakdown of everything that happened that night, kind of down to the minute. We don't really get too high level with it uh because we're really kind of stuck down in the weeds of marching through almost to the minute what was happening that night that uh Shakur got shot and that was kind of a play-by-play that Frank helped put together okay okay so and then the second one is a look into what how's what's the next part of this uh, this journey well the second one is we expand we expanded a little bit what you don't want to do is you don't want to do the same thing over and over again. It right, gets right, old. Right. Um, right. And, and so when we did the second one, we went back over the first one a little bit and kind of recapped it. But ultimately the second one was a lot of interviews with Tupac's aunt, with his uh, Layla Steinberg, Tracy Robinson, several people that were very, very close to Tupac. And 
we really took the time to explore in that one the impact that the killing had on those around them and, and kind of their stories about, you know, the emotional toll that it takes. Because, you know, famous or not famous, somebody died and people are affected by that. So we really made that the exploration of that one. And, of course, while we're at it, we threw in a couple of rocks at the Vegas corruption and added a little bit more that we followed up on from the first movie. So it's it's really more of a... I kind of like part two because it's kind of a more touchy-feely type of movie right, than right. part one was kind of a bullet <laughs> howitzer, bullet point kind of a movie. And uh, and I like part two because it looks at a whole different side of things. Now, let me ask you something. What Was there anything that really shocked you in the second second time, the second doc, when you talked to these people that maybe you learned about Tupac that you didn't know about in the first one? That's a great question. You know, I don't think anybody's ever asked me well, that. Um, this is a professional podcast, my <laughs> friend. Yeah, that's right. We're not messing around here yeah. with these questions. Um, you know, I think Pac's sense of humor was pretty clear from Frank. But one of the things that, that I learned from Tracy and from Layla and from Glow was that in those last days right before he died, he was very fixated on his relationship with Kadata Jones he wanted a family. He wanted to have kids. He was ready for that. He was ready to make that move. He wanted to get more into the acting side of things. And that was really something that I hadn't really focused on because I'd been so busy worrying about his days as a rap artist, and his relationship with death row. But they really put a, did an angle on that that said, no, you know, he had pretty much moved on. He, he knew what he could do there. And, and so that, that did surprise me that he was so wi willing and eager to settle down because publicly he sure didn't look like it. Yeah, 100%. And that's kind of a, a, an interesting theme of this second, this third installment that you did is that there is the public persona and the actual personal private persona with Tupac that doesn't match. Like that, his aunt in this talks about how that gangster um, uh, image isn't Tupac and that Tupac actually went, uh, I didn't find this out, but I've known this about, he actually went to like, I think. Art school. Art school, Juilliard, mm. I yeah. believe. He was a dancer, and that Definitely this danced, image yeah. really wasn't. And you see that almost in the NWA stuff with Ice Cube. He went to private school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he went to a, he went to Baltimore School of the Performing Arts. Oh, and, okay. Uh, that was kind of the high school for performing arts. In fact, the TV show Fame was about that school. That's so school interesting because I was going to say and, Fame. Yeah. So he went. He went and he did that. You know, he was professionally trained as an actor. You know, and the best thing, uh, you know, Tupac was a poet, and I really like his dad, Billy Garland, put that out there. He was a poet, and he used to write poetry, and he would put those poems, and I think even Tupac said in that deposition, I think we have at the beginning of the movie, that he put his poems to music. Once he figured out that he could take that poetry and make it into something that was musical, you know, he was in, and that's, that's really where he found his niche. All right, all right, so let's get into this, dude. There's some pretty shocking stuff that you I hadn't heard of that maybe you might uh, you guys might know of, but I didn't know of that was you know so the death death row comes from basically Compton is a you start off telling the story and it's very interesting because you tell you do a lot of backstory at the beginning which is very interesting and I and later on you realize how important that is to the story that's being told right now so it opens up at um, with you almost driving around with the mayor, uh, what was the mayor's name? Omar. Omar Bradley. Omar Bradley, the mayor of Compton, former mayor of Compton. Former mayor of Compton. Now, what? As I watch this, I'm trying to figure out: is Omar a good guy or a bad guy? You know what? First off, let me let me c congratulate you on on your observation. I'm really glad that you picked up on the fact. That we spent a lot of time we burned up a lot of fuel on the beginning of the movie and i got dinged in early screenings of the movie when we showed it to people they were saying well what's with the mexican guy and we don't get it and why do you, you know why do you spend so long getting into the whole thing with tupac and it, you know i just kept saying it's necessary you got to have context and so thank you for that that's a great observation which is your laying context that sometimes there's a fine line between police officer and criminal and sometimes that line is. is cocaine and they sniff it up is that basically yep. the point of what we're saying here 
Yeah, I mean, absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, the the more that you have exposure, and in those days, drugs were just everywhere, and the money was just everywhere. They couldn't find enough places to stash money and stash dope, and and you know, you can't be anywhere around that and not get affected by it. So it just kind of goes without saying. On a separate that there were tip, cops. Yeah, 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 for sure. We've, I mean, like in my own personal life, and I've said this before on this podcast. My grandfather, who was a police officer in Niagara Falls. You know, God rest his soul, you know, uh, at his memorial, one side of the the memorial was all New York, uh, Niagara Falls police officers. The other side was all mob from uh, (laughs) Niagara Falls mob. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. You know, and and to answer your question about Omar Bradley, you know, that that's another great observation. I'm not, I don't want to pass judgment on Omar Bradley. I mean, he was very gracious in giving us the interview and he was very honest. And I, you know, and that was really something, you know, anytime somebody's going to tell you about the money laundering operations and stripping away all of that, all of that, those levels of obfuscation, you know, uh, that I think he's, he's a decent dude. Now in the movie, the fact that we're ambivalent about him, I mean, he's a politician and I think that's the best way we can characterize him. You know, right. is he always honest? Uh, is he, you know, does he always tell the truth? I don't know. You know, but he's a politician. So sometimes if it's, you know, works to his advantage to be one way or another, he's probably going to sway to that angle. I mean, you know, you, you, there's a fine line between having a lot of knowledge about something and having too much knowledge about something, if you know what I mean. So, so yeah, if you want to play with that, dude. Uh, so we basically, so let's get into this. There's, there's a, it's called the battle for Compton for because there is a complete other connection between the Compton Police Department and Death Row Records and possibly the death of Tupac but mo- more about Biggie Smalls in this in this thing there's some shocking interesting allegations first of all I want to start off with uh the allegation that allegedly there is a belief that Snoop Dogg could have been snitching and that's how he gets out of his his uh, murder rap and a couple of other things where you see him with high-end high end, uh, enforcement and he doesn't do any time. Right. I mean, he's kind of the Teflon Don. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, whenever you, you, you've got a murder trial and evidence goes disappearing from the Pacific Division LAPD evidence lockers you know the evidence just gets up gets legs and walks away you've got to have some connections there and i think it's very interesting that kevin gaines who we talked about in the uh in the picture who was a arguably corrupt lapd cop was also dating sharitha knight who was not only suge knight's wife at the time but he was living with her and and also uh he was snoop's bodyguard and he happened to be working at Pacific Division at LAPD when those pieces of evidence disappeared. So, you know, you can do the math on that one. Yeah, it is uh, interesting. Have you ever heard anything like that, Chris, at your uh, Freemason meeting? <laughs> Not a whole lot of Snoop Dogg talk <laughs> at the meetings. Um, I have heard that, yeah, supposedly he was dropping a little dime in order to get off of his, you know, his murder trial. Um that connection that you just you just talked about, I had never heard that before, though. It's always so yeah. interesting. Okay, go on. Sorry. Oh, no worries. I was going to say, you know, the, the other thing is, uh, uh, you know, um, when Snoop gets picked up at the uh, Universal Studios Sheriff Station, he's being chased by a bunch of bloods. And he's being chased around, and he goes into the Sheriff Station. You know, what's the first thing he does? He rolls over, and they say, who do you think killed Tupac? And he says, the guy sitting next to him, which implicates Suge Knight. You know, I mean, really, that's that's a serious gangbanger right now. These guys are known for just shutting up and not saying anything. But what's the first thing Snoop does when they pick him up? He, you know, just rolls over on Shook. So interesting. And that, that well, there's also some animosity in the, in the movie. You discuss there's animosity between Tupac, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. Yeah, Tupac wanted to come to the death row. I mean, Nature and Gregory and everybody that knew Tupac prior to Tupac going to jail, when he wanted to record a death row, I mean, this is a guy who would look up 
to Ice Cube when he was with Digital Underground, they'd do a show and Public Enemy would come up and, and Chuck D and all of them would start to perform. Tupac would actually go from backstage and jump down into the crowd and watch those guys with reverence. I mean, there were guys that were in the hip hop game that Tupac just absolutely adored, admired, and he was like a little groupie for those guys. And um, one of the things that, you know, was clear was, you know, Dre was making noise at that time with NWA and Snoop was making noise with Death Row and Tupac being the guy who wants to fly at a certain altitude, so to speak, wanted to record with Dre and he wanted to record with Snoop. And it's so funny and kind of ironic that that old saying, be careful what you wish for, you may get it. He did record with both of them and he ended up not liking either one of them. Yeah, it was, it was crazy and, and, and a real real um, powder keg in this whole situation is that Snoop Dogg does a Snoop Dogg does a interview on the radio in which he states he has no problem with the East Coast you know and that he is uh, he's anti that he doesn't have a problem with Puffy or Notorious B.I.G. and this in turn gets the ball rolling to a lot of uh, uh, animosity animosity right Absolutely. Um, you know, that was and we do actually cover that a lot in a lot greater detail in the first assassination movie. You know, we had to cut this one down. My distributor kept yelling at me that they wanted it under two hours. And I was like, there's no way we're going to make it under two hours. It's just oh. too much ground to cover. But when you do that, suddenly you come up with a three and a half hour cut. Things have to go by the wayside. So what we always say is watch part three. But if you really want to dig deeper into any part of it, Watch part one and part two because they really get granular about a lot. So of that you're like stuff. the Lord of the Rings of uh, <laughs> Tupac assassination. Yeah, really. Yeah, it's turning out that way. You know, when we when we wanted to name it Tupac assassination three battle for Compton, the first thing I thought of was a Transformers movie. Because, <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, so, so, that's so yeah. interesting. That's so yeah, interesting, so, dude. Yeah, it was. But really, I mean, but we we wanted to separate. We just wanted to call it Tupac assassination three. Uh, but you know that that was the whole thing. We had so much ground to cover in this one, and so much new information that had been given over the last seven years that it was just crazy to want to have to go back and try to uh, reinvent the first movie. I mean, we say, you know what? If you want a deep dive, cool. Go back to the first one and watch what happened minute by minute. But yeah, in New York, that September fourth of nineteen ninety six. I mean, Snoop verifies, I mean, this was only an allegation that had been made by his bodyguards that there was a beef between Snoop and Tupac at the time. And Tupac confronted Suge Knight about it because they couldn't find Snoop. And, you know, and then later on, I mean, this is what, 20 years later, Snoop does an interview with, uh, I think it was Shade 45 on Sirius. And he admits that, that not only did that all happen, but that, you know, he was basically security was thrown off the airplane and he was, you know, sitting under a blanket with, I think, a knife and a fork or something like that. You know, yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. Gonna, he does okay. say that, actually. Now, what, yeah. seeing that you've done this for how many years, you say 10 years you've been doing these movies, yeah. 11 years. Was years. it shocking to you that hologram Tupac didn't try to shoot Snoop Dogg while they were on stage? <laughs> Did you think that there might be a chance that hologram Tupac? Funny. It would have just been funny if he just walked off stage. Yeah. That would have been funny. If he just went fuck you in the click you claim and he just walks yep. off stage? Bam, that's it. Done. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, when I hear that allegation, that makes that weird moment at Coachella just weird. Just, I mean, not only is he singing with a, a, a basically a computer hologram but yeah. now it's a hologram that probably really shouldn't like him <laughs> well, snoop is visibly right. shook during that performance oh, really? like he keeps it's, when i watched it it's like it looks like he he's really studying this hologram <laughs> like, like... <laughs> like you said first of all this is a dude that i didn't even wasn't even cool with at the time you know what i mean and now it's like he's alive again it's all fucked up and it's gotta be weird yeah it's gotta be weird man uh, to be on stage but now you know the history it's got well, it was weird. It was weird all the way to the bank, right? Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. I, you know, everyone wants red. Everyone's fighting over reds and blues. But guess what? The only color that matters is green, you know? Green. At, at the end yep. of the day. Bars. So, <laughs> right? So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Death Row Records almost starts off from a crazy place in that that the, uh, 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 Suge Knight is introduced to Dr. Dre by Rick Ross. 
Yeah, that's what Rick Ross claims. Freeway Ricky Ross claims that. He claims that he introduced the two of them and then actually convinced David Kenner, who was the attorney for Death Row Records, to uh, get into the music game because he'd make more money doing records and music than he ever would do in law, which is saying a lot because I know a lot of really rich lawyers. Yeah. Yeah, it's there's something about Jewish guys just love to act black. They just they got to like the dude who yeah. owns the Source Awards. Like that guy, just they, yeah. they try. The, my best friend is Jewish, and he just can't stop wearing fucking fubu. It's like they don't nobody wears fubu anymore, man. We have a that's lot right. in common, yeah, man. Yeah, that's oh, right. Oh yeah, they yeah, do. yeah. The oh, blacks, yeah. the Italians, the Jews, yeah. and the Armenians yeah. all uh, just want to be the. Uh, I'll just want everybody noses, to unmanageable hair, slavery. We got, got all that in common. Blacks want to be Italians. Pants. Italians want to be Jews. Jews want to be blacks. Yeah. It's just like this weird fucking triangle. This circle of life. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's yep. it's it so is. weird. Okay. So David Kenner comes in. He helps establish Death Row Records. Um, then you start getting into the Compton in this thing. And in 1993, you say that there's a lot of shit that goes on in Compton that you might not know of. That, and first of all is the state came in and took over the uh, school education board. Mm -hmm. They took it over. Yeah. Now, it, within the movie, you, why, did the, why did the state end up, in your opinion, according to your movie, giving back the school system to Omar? Well, Omar was burning the or Omar was burning the schools down. I mean, this was you know you saw this in the Rodney King riots. You saw you saw this kind of behavior when there's a certain group of people when they don't get their way and they don't get what they like or they're unhappy about it. Instead of going after the people that they're really pointing the finger at, they burn their own neighborhood down, which is still defies any logic that I can see. I, but, dude, you know they do that. I've done and, jokes about that, dude. It's like, why yeah. are you burning your own neighborhood? I just the don't fuck? get I mean, it. Yeah, exactly. Let's make it harder for you to go cash your EBT. I mean, yeah. really? You know? <laughs> I've always said that about like, like, especially when somebody wins a championship, <clears throat> it's like, why are you burning your own village? If um, your own, your own city, if you win a champion, right. you should get on a bus and burn the city that lost <laughs> fucking city down. Right. Well, yeah, that's the thing. So, so, but in this case, it was a lot more insidious because the, the, the the reason that it was happening, the reason that they were burning these schools down was because they were trying to create the pain that only they could solve. They set the schools on fire and then tell the state of California, why aren't you why didn't you know that school was going to catch fire? And I think it was by the ninth time they had set a school on fire. Nine times. Yeah, nine times. And, and by that ninth time, the state of California just finally said, you know what? Yeah, you're local boots on the ground. You seem to have a better handle on what's going on there. We can't send the National Guard down to surround, you know. I mean, they've got a, Compton's 10 square miles. So it's not like they, they can send the National Guard to just seal off the city and protect it. But, you know, the state finally said, you know, yeah, maybe you are a better uh, better champion for your for your city than we are. And it was kind of a bad PR thing for the state because, you know, I mean, the state's supposed to be taking over the schools and making them better, and yet the schools are burning down for unknown reasons. Yeah, so it's, it's that was crazy. The, that was... And we lost him. And we lost him. He's frozen on us in time. I'll always remember R.J. Bond. <laughs> Omar uh, got a hold of the Omar broadcast. Of the <laughs> are you there, dude? Are you there? Can you hear me now? Yes, yes. we can. We can. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Right, cool. So he burns it down, but this brings us into the corruption in Compton, which brings us into a quick fact because I want to start getting into this more. That there's corruption throughout the the the, the government of of Compton. I don't think anyone's surprised yep. by that. To the point that they actually, for the I, the first time I've ever heard about this, dissolved the Compton Police Department. Yeah, I mean, you got to ask yourself, what does it take to to close an entire police department for corruption? I mean, there are so many things you can do in the middle. You can, you know, fire the police chief or you can have the state come in and put some administrators in to take it over. I think that's something something like that happened up in the North Bay in the northern part of California. You know, there's a lot of things you can do. It's got to be pretty freaking bad for you yes. to dissolve an entire police department. Now, the way they went about it was very interesting because 
they hired the L.A. County sheriffs to come in and provide the services for the city. So this L.A. County sheriffs started patrolling it. And L.A. County sheriffs actually were patrolling everywhere around it. So it was kind of a pain in the ass for the sheriffs because they would get to the border of Compton and then they could they'd have to drive around Compton to go keep patrolling. So it was easier for them because now they have that area, too. So they can just assign the people. And, you know, if a guy runs across the street from. Uh, you know, L.A. to Compton, there's not a jurisdictional problem anymore. So the sheriffs were happy about that. But what they did was in making a deal with Omar Bradley, most of the Compton police officers went to the Los, uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. They just kind of transferred. They changed uniforms. Yes. So these guys still had Tim Brennan. These guys still had. Uh, you know, they still had resources available to them through the county sheriffs, and they really didn't change much of their daily, you know, daily activities. They were still interacting with the same people. They just had a different uniform on. There was a, a handful of people that the L.A. Sheriff's Department did not pick to work for them. And, of course, they went off to the Compton School Police and to a couple of other places. But that was kind of the deal. Omar Bradley, you know, it wasn't like you dissolve the police department for corruption and then 150 people are out of a job. That right. wasn't how it was at right. all. They just and, they go um, different places. Yeah. Now, this is what made it, you know, we talked a little bit about it in the movie, but this is what made it even weirder, though, was that a handful of them who just didn't like the fact that they were closing the police department down, they got a job with the sheriff's department, but then they turned around and sued the city of Compton for closing the police department down. And, you know, I guess they weren't, they didn't like the fact they were going to the sheriff's department. If I was a cop, the sheriffs have got much more resources than, you know, the city of Compton does. You're going to get all the support you need to do your job. But these guys had something going on that they didn't like their party getting interrupted. So right. they sued to try to keep the Compton police department and then they lost. Well, then these guys, they, they appealed it. They, they appealed it all the way up to federal court to appeal getting the Compton Police Department back. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you really, you really got to want your job. I mean, I've lost a job or two in my lifetime. I've never tried to sue to get the job back. Yeah, you fired you know? me, I never come back. And I always knew <laughs> I was about to get fired because they'd ask me to go to the office. You ever notice that? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, can I yeah, talk to you in the of office? Shame. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, fuck it's you. The, it's that walk of shame. <laughs> Nobody ever well, comes back from the office. Leave your shit so, up the, on, the, yeah. on the desk. So let's get into yep. death row. So money and <laughs> drugs, and there's a lot of money in death row. I, 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 you say a number right now in... Uh, where is it? In nineteen oh, in nineteen ninety six, death row is worth half a billion dollars. A lot yeah. of that money is coming from the sales of Tupac. Yeah. Okay. A lot of money at this point. Everything's going crazy. Tupac is getting charged for studio time. Tupac is uh, 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 engineers are getting kicked out of the studio. He's getting upset. Now, a theme of this is Tupac has a big heart until he gets weird and you fuck him over. So now he thinks you're fucking him over and he'll cut you out. The wheels are turning. He's he's planning an exit from from Death Row Records at this point when it's worth five hundred million dollars. Right. And, you know, and, and you got to ask yourself the question. I mean, where does that valuation come from? I mean, you know, if, if anybody ever checked the numbers Let's say Tupac was successful and he sold 80 million records. Well, how do we know that? How do we know he really sold 80 million? I'm not saying he wasn't popular. Maybe he sold 40 million. And maybe that other 40 million was kind of funny money, kind of money being passed around. Right. Because that's how you get that much money into your bank. Yeah. Is by saying, well, if I here's my check for $100 million. I'm going to go take it down to Chase Bank where I bank. And I'm going to give them a check for $100 million. They're going to say, how the hell did you get this money? And I would have to say, well, I sold 80 million albums. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Well, not, but if they said, well, you only sold 10 albums and the rest of it I got from money laundering, you know, what, do you think they'll cash your check? Right. So I, I think that there was probably that going on as well. Uh, you know, I again, there's really no and this has always been why the music industry has been kind of a magnet for the mob and the magnet for organized crime, because there are very, very few industries that you can be very loose about how much money comes and goes out of the business. Um, you know, for example, if I was a lamp company and I did one hundred million dollars worth of sales in lamps, 
there's going to be a hundred you know or fifty million or eighty million dollars worth of manufacturing costs and you've got the receipts to show right. for it you've got all that the record industry and intellectual property in general is just kind of this nebulous yeah. world you know where you can just throw bandy around money and there's really no one to check. I mean, if I sell 100 million lamps, there's going to be inventory. There's going to be, uh, you know, a distribution chain that can verify all that. The record industry is completely different. I mean, RIA, the Record Industry Association of America, they're like the only one. They're the ones that make a record go gold, platinum, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. You know, they're the only ones that are really verifying. I mean, there's sound scan and video scan, but even that's manipulated. So there's really no check and balance going on to where if somebody wants to announce, hey, R.J. Bond just sold 80 million records. Wow. Congratulations. And the reason you know? this and, is a big and, deal, what you're saying right now, is because yeah. what gets the ball rolling is Tupac edits, does an audit, excuse me, of Death Row Records right before yeah, the Mike to, Tyson yeah, fight to. where he goes to Vegas which is very big. Now the ball is rolling. There's going to be numbers being checked, okay? And this is a big deal. So we get the – now, who do you think are the prime players behind the shooting of Tupac Shakur? Okay, first off, are we still on? Am I frozen? Am I still good? You're still on. You're still sexy as All fuck. Right. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um Okay, so what we picked up was we picked up an alternative theory to events because up until now, there's only really been one suspect that the cops have trotted out constantly as being the shooter. And we can talk about who was behind it all day, but a lot of people want to know, you know, who's the guy on the ground? Who's the guy? Who's the trigger man? You know, who's the guy who got his hands dirty and all of this, right? And up until uh, a few years ago, there wasn't really anybody. Then nobody was really putting anybody out there. And it was kind of this murky, well, we can never quite get to that. But if you don't believe Orlando Anderson, he's AKA like, he's Baby all Lane, got, right? Baby Lane? Baby Lane. That's the yeah, guy. Baby Lane. And yeah, if you don't know who Baby guy, Lane is, and it's, and he's it's the almost guy. just kind of by process of elimination. If you don't have anybody else, well, let's just use this guy. The, well, the guy who got curb quick. stomped by everybody at the MGM. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, there was a fight at the MGM. It lasted probably 30 seconds. And, you know, and that gave him. To the people that wanted to put him out there, that gave him, and it was clearly an afterthought, that he was the best the best guy to blame for it. Yes. So, you know, they just kind of made it all. Well, but, in the movie you the state the day, that somebody tells him that he's about to lose his parole for something. Parole, he's about to lose parole, and he runs, and well, he runs at this dude. Yeah, well, that's actually, the, the, the reality of the situation is we see it. And Reggie Wright, who was the head of death row security, he was quoted in an interview as saying this, that they didn't want to kill Tupac or they didn't want to put him in, you know, they didn't want to, you know, put him in harm's way. But he was getting out of hand and they, they didn't like how he's that. And their M.O. was always to embarrass them or humiliate them. And so Reggie said all we would have to do is revoke his parole. Tupac was out on parole at that time. And it was very easy with a phone call from David Kenner or from somebody else to call back to New York and say, hey, and especially if Compton PD picks him up and just puts him in jail, they can call New York and say he just violated his parole. And, oh, by the way, uh, let's put him back in jail. And the idea behind that was that and it's kind of a stupid idea. But the idea is that if they violate him, violate him on his parole, Tupac goes to jail. Maybe Tupac will chill out. Maybe he'll be humbled a little bit. Maybe he'll want to come back to death row again. But the, the fallacy of that is once they violate his parole, he's gone. There's no, not anybody that's going to be. I don't care how much power you got. If he's gone and he's violated his parole, he ain't getting out anytime soon at all. Right, so right. it would have been years. So that's kind of a bullshit statement to make and kind of a bullshit theory anyway. Right, and right. I will call bullshit on that. Okay. But, the, but at the end of the day, I am sure that that was what they believed. I'm sure that they thought that they would just humble Tupac or find a way to humiliate him so they could have leverage. I mean, that's the way Suge Knight worked. That's the way the whole operation worked. It wasn't about, you know, whether or not you were good for them or bad okay. for them. It was all about what leverage they had. Hold over. on, hold on, was hold on, hold on. So now, okay, because there's a lot of moving pieces here. You, mm -hmm. based on the movie and based on what you're saying, you're saying that that Suge Knight wanted to revoke his parole. Is that what you're saying? And that another powers that be 
other powers that be, based upon your movie, want to take out Suge Knight. So Suge Knight's trying to get Tupac in jail, and then two other people, three other people, a bodyguard, uh, what's his name, the lawyer, um, Reggie Reggie Wright Jr., okay, David David Kern, and Sharita Knight, you think we're trying to kill, according to your movie, trying to shoot... Uh, uh, Suge Knight and hit Tupac. Yeah, let me and I and I I, I have to be legalistic about these your things allegations so that, so that people so that people don't go on TMZ and make all kinds of crazy ass statements like where things things we don't say. Here's here's the scoop. When we do the movies and we've been doing this for the past ten years, so we get pretty good at it. What we do is we put out a theory and we say, okay, this is what we believe happened. People, there are certain people that are involved that have a reason, means, motive, and opportunity to do it. And then we lay out the reasons, the means, the motive, and the opportunity that each one of these people would have had. You know, are we saying they did it? No, but we're certainly saying somebody did, and these people need to be looked at. They need to be looked at because here's why. If they did it, here's why. So and you're, that's a you're not saying you know for sure. You're saying based right. upon your, your, your investigation, there was motive. Right. I mean, you know, anytime you look at a let's you take a, a killing, the first person they look at is the spouse. The first person 100%. they look at is the wife. And I think that and a lot of people agree that the biggest trouble with this investigation was that Suge Knight lived. Had Suge Knight been killed, Sharitha would have been the very first person that they would have looked at and they would have bore hard down on her because you know when you own half of a uh, half of a company or half of your partner's interest your spouse's interest taking the other half is certainly tempting and you've got you know 250 million or 125 million good reasons why you might want to do that so again are we saying she did it no but we're given a lot of good reasons why if she did this is why okay and you know and again you know because certainly people aren't don't have clean hands in any of this. Right. Now, Chris, you were saying that that isn't necessarily what you think might have happened based on your Freemason meeting. <laughs> Do you, did, does, did the Illuminati get him? Yeah, the Illuminati. <laughs> There's the black Illuminati. It's a new rapper. No, no, no. Uh, so what you, were, you were, what you were just saying is that the target was Suge and yes. not Tupac. Yes. Right. Now that— Yeah, that was—that's yeah. that, that's what— the information that we got, and I also, you know, this came from a conversation that we had with Brent Becker, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. And, you know, one of the big nagging questions that's always been hanging out there is, you know, why has Vegas, if in fact they're they're investigating, a lot of people say they just aren't investigating it. But if they did investigate it and they got to a certain point, why why was nothing ever further done? Why was there nothing ever more done on the case? Yeah. And based on the conversation we had and unfortunately for me i didn't catch it for about eight years because you know when you're just getting into this and i was i mean when i did the first assassination movie clearly i didn't have 10 years worth of investigation under my belt and i was just catching up on everything and treading water you know a lot of what i was picking up was from frank a lot of what i was picking up was a lot of information and for anybody who knows it's a hell of a lot of information to try to get your hand around so when you're when you're doing that, you're listening to Brent Becker, you're hearing him talk about things, but but what you're catching is you're catching the main points. You're not catching the subtext. You're not catching the between the lines parts of it. You know, reading between the lines of what he's saying and what he's not saying because he's you know he's a Vegas cop. He's not going to sit there and out everybody on the Vegas Police Department right, and right. add everything out. You know, right. he'll he'll make some allusions and he'll make some comments and some statements to get away with what he can get away with saying without saying it. And of course, at that time, and that was the last time I looked at his interview was back you know you know almost ten years ago. And so when we were going back through all the material and writing the story and figuring out what we wanted to use, was there anything that was usable from him? I listened to his interview and listening to an interview you did with 10 years more experience under your belt right. versus then, wow, you, you know, you just pick up so much more subtext and you pick up so right, much more right, innuendo right, in that. And, and so right. when Becker said, hey, when you investigate the CEO – or the attempted killing of a CEO of one kind of corporation, that's one type of investigation. But now you're talking about the record industry. And I said, well, hold the fort there, because why is he talking about the CEO? Tupac wasn't a CEO of anything. 
Right. Why would you even be mentioning the word wow. of a corporation? Yes. Okay. So all of a sudden, the light bulb went on and said, wait a minute. I went back and I looked at Russ Poole's uh, documents, and he had the interview that Suge Knight did with the Vegas police. And they told him flat out, you are not a suspect in this. We consider you a victim. And they told it to him right out of the gate in plain black and white. And, and when I saw those two together, I said, well, wait a minute now. This changes the dynamic of everything. Right. Because – you're not take Tupac out of the car for a minute. And what do you have? You've got the attempted assassination of one of the most powerful men in the music industry at that time. OK. Right. And and so when you look at that, what are the stakes? What are the odds there when you're going to do that kind of a uh, a hit, if you will? Do you think that some gang guy, random gang guy that got beat up is going to be so mad? I mean, think about how mad you have to be. That he's going to go grab a couple of his buddies and go ride up to try to kill Tupac. And oh, by the way, the most powerful man in the music industry is like the president is sitting next to him. No, I'm and, with you. You know, and you want to take a shot at him because if you miss, you better hit. You better kill that guy. Yeah. Because because if you miss him, you have a world of problems coming to you. Chris, real quick, real quick. I totally agree with you. We just got to get to the next part of this because we got about ten minutes left here. The go biggest man, thing, the biggest thing, there was an order to all of Tupac's bodyguards yeah. to not bring their weapons. No guns. Leave all your guns back at the hotel. Leave all your guns back. And everybody was like, and here's the thing about all these, mm-hmm. all these, most of them are all dead. All of his bodyguards. Right now, it's been yeah. a, a little while since that. So that that and then wasn't have... that Frank guy? Wasn't he supposed to be? Doesn't he usually ride in the car with Tupac? But on that date, he was told to get in the car behind him. Also, wasn't that another thing? That kind of goes back and forth. Um, uh, normally speaking, the bodyguards will tail the the entertainer mm-hmm. because Tupac used to shake the bodyguards all the time. He used to drive through red lights and stuff right. to get rid of the bodyguards just to fuck with them. But um, but when when there was something serious that was going on, yeah, the bodyguard would generally hitch a ride with whomever they were, you know, protecting at that time. So if you know, because they were talking about, you know, they used to drive around these big Escalades and things like that. Right. Not in you know, not in a Toyota Prius or something. They you know had these big cars. So if Tupac was in your car, Frank could go with them because clearly you don't want to lose your bodyguard if you're going someplace and you know you get out and you don't have your bodyguard with you. Exactly. That could get kind of ugly. Um, in this particular case, you know, the BMW is not a big car. Uh, you know, Suge's not a small guy. So you've got the two of them sitting in there. You know, they want to discuss their business. And they told Frank to go ahead. They weren't going to take Tupac's Hummer. They instead decided they were going to take, you know, uh, Kadada Jones's Lexus, I think it was. And, uh, you know, Frank was upset because when he got in the car, he found out they only had like an eighth of a tank of gas. He spent more of his time worrying about the fact that they were just going to run out of gas on the strip and leave them behind and, and fall out of the whole procession just because they were going to run out of gas. Okay. So, you know, yeah, they, they put them in there, but you know, the, the thing about and talking about the guns for a minute, I mean, the, this is how I keep this in perspective. And it was something I hadn't thought about until about a year ago. You got to realize, I mean, on its surface, telling all the guards not to carry their weapons and everything like that, you can give a hundred reasons why, but here's the thing about it. Las Vegas and the state of Nevada is what's called an open carry state which means it's like the Wild West. If you want to wear your gun in public and you want to keep it out and show everybody that you've got a gun, you can do it. It's an open carry state. You don't have to have a permit to carry a gun in Nevada. You have to have a permit to carry it concealed in Nevada. But the hell with it. If you want to keep it on your waist or keep it on your belt and walk around like it's the Wild West, you're more than welcome to do that. And that's kind of what Michael Moore did. And so so the order to leave your guns and then the excuse that they gave later, well, it was because of a benefit and because of this, that and the other. It, that doesn't matter if you're in an open carry state. It's the law that you can carry a gun anywhere you want to. So what difference would it have made? No, you're and right. that's what makes this whole notion of telling the bodyguards not to carry any weapons even more ludicrous. OK, so let's get into this. So I, I think it makes sense what you're saying. You see it happening in politics right now. I just want to get any thoughts on it, Chris? Any thoughts on it, Ryan? No. No, I think it makes total sense because at first I thought the argument was that Suge was the – 
prime suspect. But but switching it around, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. To and me that his sure. wife was would get it, and then that yeah. the lawyer would. It's all this stuff. Now I really and I I know we don't have a lot of time, Aaron. Can we have ten more minutes? Can we ten fifteen more minutes real quick? Um, the I find the story of the notorious B.I.G.'s murder as very interesting, dude, yeah. because it involves corruption at the highest level within Rampart, you know, and Ram- yep. I mean, I remember reading all about these motherfuckers, mm-hmm. you know, and how yep. crazy and deep it is, because again, there's a fine line between cop and criminal. It's so close. Like, I had friends of mine who were cops, and they were the biggest scumbags in college. The biggest gang in and I, LA. You know, and again, this is about all cops. Within any no. group of anything, there are bad apples. Within Certainly. comedians, there are comics who steal from other comedians. Doesn't mean all comedians right. do it, you know. And so it's right. like it's a very much a, uh, uh, you know, it's like this is a with great power, you know, comes great responsibility, and great power corrupts, you know. And it's just it's yeah. real quick. So Rampart, dude, how real quick in a quick sentence or two, so we can get into this. How does the shooting of Tupac? affect the shooting of Biggie Smalls real quick. Basically, the killing of Biggie Smalls was actually done to solidify and cement the lie that had been started the day that Tupac Shakur got shot. Not the day he died, but the day he got shot, because they had to come up with a reason that that Tupac got shot and things didn't go sideways. If Suge Knight wasn't going to stop and ask questions, there'd have been no reason to have to come up with an excuse. Nobody would have had to have given any reason. But Suge Knight lived through the experience, and of course, he's going to want to know who shot him, right? Right. So, so the fact that he comes out and he says, "Hey, who's shooting at me?" Well, now they got to come up with a reason. They got to come up with some explanation that makes sense. The problem was they kept coming up with these this lame excuse that that was so flimsy. Vegas wasn't buying it. The public wasn't buying it. You show the you know, five different excuses that they get. It yeah, starts out with a grain yeah, of a exactly. chain. So you do that now. But every time you come back, now that you've committed and you've locked yourself into this position, now you have to just keep doing things to try to reinforce it and bring in guys like Keefe D years later in and trying to do things to try to shake it up to say, hey, well, if you don't believe that, how about this? Well, and they keep changing the story. But at the end of the day, the reason that Biggie got killed, in our opinion, was because there was already a lie that was being told, and it was getting harder and harder to, to cement that whole gang or East Coast, West Coast thing. It was getting harder and harder to do that. So the only way they could do it was to, show was in prison or in jail at the time, is to whack a guy on the East Coast, blame it on the gang war, and then and make the allegation that Suge Knight had something to do with it when there's no proof that he did. Okay, so let's get into this. Uh, one of the guys who worked for uh, a lot of belief is that that Reggie uh, and a, a belief is there's evidence to suggest it possible that Reggie Wright Jr. put a hundred uh, put a million dollar bounty on Puffy and Biggie, hmm. and that he put up that he put up the first uh, two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars. Right. We'll get into the actual assassination attempt. Or the actual assassination. The assassination doesn't go right, okay? Now they owe another $750,000, according to your research, which is what shows, in which this guy, um, this guy, what is his name? Raphael Perez? Is he? Yeah, Raphael Perez and David Mack, right. Have to rob a bank. Oh, David Mack and that have to rob a bank, in which... And now I heard this before your show. They get arrested. They get found. David Mack gets pulled over and goes, oh, is this about the bank robbery? Even though they hadn't even asked him that. Yeah. The sh- right. The, the car that shoots the notorious B.I.G. is a black SS Impala. David Mack owns a black SS Impala. Take us yep. basically what is happening. Ramparts just falling apart. And real quick, because we got about ten minutes, real quick, we get, basically there's a rat. There's an, not a rat. There's an informant who tells all the information. His his name is Kenneth Bogini. 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 Okay. Yeah, Bogini. And he's Ken, Ken Bogini. And now he's and, helped uh, a bunch of other cases. Basically, 
they've solved. He basically was their case for the state to convict these other people for other stuff, drugs and all that stuff. And he comes forward with the story from uh, who? Who is the guy? Rafael Perez tells basically spills the beans on what happened. Yeah, let me give you the snapshot of it. Ken Ken Bogany was a guy who was a cellmate of Rafael Perez when Rafael Perez was in jail for taking coke out of the evidence locker. He got busted for that. So he he goes to jail, the whole Rampart scandal. Ken Bogany was his cellmate for, I mean, better part of six months, if I'm not mistaken. And Ken Bogany was a guy who uh, clearly Rafael Perez liked to talk and told a lot of things to. And the information that Rafael Perez gave to Ken Bogany was very important to the LAPD. I mean, they'd pull this guy out. And the LAPD's got this thing called a border rights hearing. It's like cop, cop court, if you will. And cops, when they do something wrong, they go in front of this board of inquiry and they decide whether or not the guy's going to get a, keep his job, get suspended, get fired, whatever, you know, get slapped on the wrist. This board of inquiry makes those decisions. Well, the LAPD had six different officers that had done some shit wrong, the miscellaneous charges against them. And Rafael Perez knew those dudes. And Ken Bogany's testimony about what, what Rafael Perez said to him about these cats actually led to them being exonerated. So Rafael Perez said, no, man, that guy never did that, or no, man, this guy wasn't involved with that. Ken Bogany's testimony cleared six cops. So the LAPD is really in a cross because now they're relying on to save these guys' jobs, to save these cops' jobs. They're wheeling out Ken Bogany and saying, this is a credible witness. This guy was with Rafael Perez. Rafael Perez told him everything. So this guy, you know, is credible. He's the guy. He's telling the truth. But when okay, it comes to now this, suddenly, yeah. Yeah, now suddenly Ken Bogany turns around and says, oh, well, wait, I got one more thing. Rafael Perez said that he and David Mack and Kevin Gaines put the hit out on Biggie Smalls. Uh-oh. Now you got a problem because the LAPD can't suddenly unwind it and say, yeah. oh, he's not credible. He's full of shit. He's not, you know, because they just used him six different times and swore up and down that this guy was reliable. So now the, he comes back and makes this brand new allegation that Rafael Perez and David Mack and these guys are involved. What does the LAPD do? They take all the recordings of his conversation, all of his testimony, even his name, and they put it in an LAPD cop's desk and lock it up. They don't give it to the Wallace family. They don't give it to the investigators in the civil case. They hide it. And, it's, and the judge got so pissed off that the LAPD hit this, they fined the city a million dollars for hiding that evidence. Unbelievable. First time in history, LAPD robbery homicide had ever been shut down. The judge shut the entire LA Police Department's robbery homicide division down for a day so that they could go in and search for that missing information, and they found it. Unbelievable. Exactly where they said it was going to be. Kevin Lee Gaines' license plate says, It's okay, IA, which you said in the movie means... It's okay. I, I'm it means with one you. of two things. Well, it means one of two things. Either he's taunting internal affairs, and and everybody always thought that where that he's taunting internal affairs, saying, "Hey, it's okay, IA. You know, you don't have to keep chasing me around. You don't have to keep messing with me." Because he always thought he was paranoid. Always thought he was being followed. But the other part of it, though, when we started looking at documents and special assignments that the LAPD was putting Kevin Gaines on, some real black box, black bag assignments, and this came out of confidential documents within the LAPD, internal affairs documents, that Kevin Gaines was doing special assignments in Vegas from two days prior to the assassination of Tupac until oh a week afterwards. Kevin Gaines was in Las Vegas with other LAPD officers. Suddenly, this whole idea of his relationship with internal affairs totally changes. We look at it, maybe that license plate said, it's okay, I'm with IA. It's okay, IA. It's like saying, it's okay, FBI. Yeah. It's okay, ATF. Oh my it's okay, God. IA. So real quick, this, this, this is, uh, as you break it down, you know the corner where he shot, Wilshire. Hmm. And uh, yep. Fairfax. Our mutual yep. friend was there when it happened. Who? Giroux. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He watched it. He didn't. He didn't see it. He was there as it happened. It was everything happened too fast. But he was there. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should talk to him about it sometime. I will, dude. I love that guy. So basically, the reason why uh, the uh, Reggie Wright Jr. wouldn't pay the whole thing is because it was actually a hit on both Big and Puffy. Puffy shoots the light. 
Mm. The light's about to turn red, shoots the light. B.I.G. doesn't. At that point, uh, Mac and Gaines go on each side, cut him off, and blast the fuck out of him. Right. Well, Gaines, the problem was... Allegedly. <laughs> Gaines was supposed to have cut him off. That was his whole role in it. He was supposed to have cut off both of them, and he didn't get there in time. And a lot of people say that's why Gaines was killed later. On, on one of the LAPD's only cop-on-cop shootings... Uh, out there where one cop actually killed another cop on purpose. Yeah, and what was the name of that cop? Frank Liga. Uh, the, yeah, Frank Liga was the cop that killed Kevin Gaines. And what was his quote? Re you know, real quick, Ryan. Yeah, he said he didn't have any regrets shooting Gaines. In fact, he wished there were more of them in the car yeah, at the time. He, he had killed a whole truckload of them. Yep. Now, is that for racial reasons or because he was dirty? Well, I think that Kevin, I, th I think that Frank Liga just has certain points of view about certain groups of individuals and uh you know and <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it yeah i think that i Diet think racism. that he, he he said he said exactly how he felt you know frank lag is not the guy who mints his words on a lot of stuff all right well man uh guys thoughts on all this as we let rj for spending an hour with us thoughts i know there was a lot of talking but it was, I found it amazing. Yeah, it goes deep, man. And it's just like money corrupts, right, dude? Totally. Absolutely. And that was an age-old story. And, like, the, you know what's so funny? It's like you see all these commercials, and they're like, you know, you never know when that stranger will come. Get our security <laughs> system. Well, it's like, are you going to protect me from the person who, <laughs> who I'm sleeping with? Right, you know, right, who's certainly. my right. best friend in this fucking thing? They'll probably slit my throat for a couple fucking dollars. You know, that's it. And I'm so glad you said that, because that's one of the points of the movie is it's like, you know, do you really want to believe? And this is the hard part we face in our society. And I'll leave it kind of with this. You know, I want to go to bed at night knowing and I truly believe it to be the case. There's a lot of good men and women that are out there. There's a lot of good cops that are out there. A lot of good you know, cops. A lot of, a lot of people that are really interested in. They do a freaking job nobody else wants to do. OK, they, they take out the trash. And, it, and it's really something that, that I respect. I come from a family of cops, too. And, and and I respect the job that they do. But there are bad apples. There are people that are just no good in it. It doesn't mean everybody is. The problem that you have is whether or not the public wants to believe uh, an inconvenient truth. And that inconvenient truth is that there are bad cops out there. And the reason that you want to believe that an Orlando Anderson who's dead killed another guy who's dead and he was killed by a bunch of guys that are dead is because you can go to sleep at night believing that there, you know, there's no big bad wolf. There's yeah. no corrupt cops out there. It's the same you thing know? in politics right now. You see it yeah. like whether you got a D or an R by your name, your yep. whatever letter you you associate with, they can do no wrong. And their whole right. act. They act totally out of pure thoughts and motives, and the other side is just rotten to the core, right. and they're just full of shit, and they're the most evil. And we do this. We demonize the other thing, and anybody who is of our characteristic, of our group, can do no wrong. And right. if, you attack, if you attack the highest up, like look at Tupac. Tupac gets shot while the head of the CEO, the CEOs of Death Row are going at it. Yep. So the high ups are going at it, and who pays for it? The fucking minions. And mm -hmm. even though Tupac wasn't necessarily a minion, but he was right. a worker. Still an employee. Yeah. Still an employee of the record label. Really, and when it just, comes down to it. You see it, in, you see it in this thing. We have all these powerful elite people firing and all the peasants fighting with each other for the fucking royalty. And it's just like, while the royalties do all this evil shit, we fight over it down here. We uh, do. You know, and, and I heard somebody say it was a very interesting comment the other day. They said that, you know, some people will look at a group and say that they're wrong. Another another person will look at that same group and say that they're evil. You know, and that's really deep when you yeah. think about it, you know, where one person says they're wrong. The other person says they're evil. That's what we that's what we're looking at here. You know, I don't think that there's anybody in this case that was necessarily evil. I mean, there were just a lot of people that did some shit that was wrong. And one last thing. And I got to tell you this. It is. I mean, we've been accused of saying, "Oh, it's this big grand conspiracy." The, you know what? That's Did you not say the case it's a tinfoil hat situation? Yeah, yeah. There you go. There, here comes the tinfoil hat out on the, you know, out on display. Huh. It was this grand conspiracy. No, that's not the case. 
you know, when I go, if I went to the clerk's office at any courthouse and I give that clerk a fraudulent document, let's say a deed of trust, and I give it to that clerk and she stamps that document and files it away, does that make that clerk part of my illegal activity? No. No. She's not part of my conspiracy. Right, right, she right. does her job. She does what she's supposed to do. And she doesn't know the difference between a fraudulent or a, or a good deed. She just punches it in and goes. They, the people that want to ding our credibility want to paint it like we're indicting the clerk, we're indicting the, the patrol guy, that we're indicting all of the LAPD. And they want to make it so grandiose that it makes us look like nutcases. The truth of the matter was that there were a few people that knew how to game the system, and they were very good at it. Yep. And because of those people, there were a lot of people that suffered. Yep. And that's yep. all we go. It wasn't a grand conspiracy. It was a few people that were bad people that knew how to game a very vulnerable system. I mean, they're talking about the evidence locker. They said anybody could just walk in and out of the evidence locker. I mean, that's pretty big trust when you think about it. Yep. You know, you got all well, that drug, guns, and everything. I've always you know, said, in, and I do you know. jokes with co uh, cops and the thing. I go, who, you guys looking for good drugs? These cops got the best drugs in the town. They keep <laughs> all the good yeah, shit. They are. They, they, they know where it all is. They And they know where to find it. If they can't, if they don't have it, they certainly know where to go get it. Yeah, it's just so stupid. All right, RJ. RJ Bond, It's uh, where can they find your movie? It's called The Assassination Battle for Compton. It, I know it's on Amazon. Is it anywhere else? Uh, uh, iTunes, yeah. any of that I stuff? I want to apologize. I want to apologize for all of our iTunes fans. Uh, there was something in the closed captioning that screwed it up, getting it delayed. It should be on iTunes starting this next week. It'll be on iTunes, but it's on Google Play. It's on Amazon. It's on uh, on demand on most uh, cable channels. It's on on demand. Uh, you know, if you want to see it, it's even on. I think YouTube has even got it for three bucks. You can go see it for three bucks. I mean, how can you go wrong with that? Can't go wrong with that. RJ, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Good luck with your movies, and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. It was great, and I hope you didn't mind my background. I took the nope. Sharitha Knight car background. We would, for, uh, we would prefer for reference it. There. We would prefer We'll it. see you guys later. Thanks, Take guys. Care. Take care. Thank you, man. Guys, I know there wasn't a lot of talk, and I feel bad about that, but uh, thoughts. It's all good. Thoughts? Mind blown, really. I mean, because, you know, it was such a big deal when I was growing it up. It was so big. And everyone had all these theories, and look at him in the music video. He's still alive. He's wearing those shoes that weren't out at the time, and the weird whispers at the beginning of his Machiavelli album and all these things. And so, but the purveying thought has always been, well, Chug is probably responsible. He wanted off death row. And that's that's not really the case, I guess, recently as it's come to light because he had been given his own imprint under death row. So their working relationship was pretty good. I mean, he did do that audit at the behest of Quincy Jones, but that's just to make sure his money was right. You know right, what I mean? Right, right, right. So... But if you do look at the the most important thing I thought he said was you take Tupac out of that car, it gives you a really different perspective on what what possibly happened, and I think that's that's the most sound thing. I you know what's so funny is I have a, a family member going through a lot of stuff, and I just feel when you talk about death a lot, yeah, death comes calling, and it's just like it's it's the same as positive thinking. The more positive thinking you do, sure, the more positive stuff can happen in your life the more you talk about death the more death is likely to show up and mm -hmm. it's just it's all out there aaron did you fall asleep during this no i did not okay that was, that was aaron's just upset <laughs> i'm because, battling a cold sorry okay <clears throat> it's all right it's all right and i know your team isn't doing very well and that gives you a saggy diaper yeah um so this has been tinfoil hat uh thank you i'd love to have you on some other time we'll talk a little bit more when uh you just got to let me know what conspiracies you really like, and we'll, we'll do it. Ryan, as always, I, I'm so thankful you're on the show. Your research really helps. And uh, I know he doesn't talk a lot, but he does a ton of work behind the scenes that really helps us with the facts and all the shit. So you're very important to the show, and I appreciate it. And uh, this has been Tinfoil Hat, man. I hope you guys enjoy it. And we got a really great one. I know you guys want me to talk about uh, what's going on in Syria. That's going to be next week. We have Graham Elwood coming on. He wants to talk CIA's uh, operations, and and uh, I, I'm going to get into some false flag stuff, too, and it's going to be – some of you guys are going to get angry, but it's going to be said. And so uh, tune in next week. Sex money. we got Graham Elwood from the Comedy Nerds. Uh, this has been Tim Fohat. You guys are both great. Thanks for coming on, and we'll see you guys next week.